voter fraud. Really? Trump's big lie, the gift that keeps on taking. Election reform or repression? What should election reform really look like? Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the unique journey of America toward a more perfect union. Good morning, good morning to one and all. I'm PJ, and this morning is July the 23rd when we are recording our program. For the record, we have convened once again in today's topic, voter fraud or the lack thereof. And with that, uh, we want to talk about what's going on with respect to suppressing the vote, how we might improve the vote, and what does the vote actually mean to all of us clearly something sacrosanct and something that this country is based on. That said, um, I look at, speaking personally, the, the big lie, the gift that keeps on taking. It's continuing, will continue, so long as the president, whose name we dare not speak, continues to push it along with his minions. Me, opinionated? No. Uh, all that said, uh, once again, we convene our roundtable to have a look at what's going on with supposed election reform and where we think that might go, where it should go. That said, I open the floor to one and to all. Thank you all once again for joining us for another scintillating. Yes, today's word is scintillating. And you may all scintillate right along with me in front of everyone on the radio. So, so um, thank you once again for joining us. And I will jump in with some of the, what I'll call the lowlights of the week. Um, as we know, the current speaker has tried to convene a blue ribbon panel. And only in the last couple of days, we have seen the clown car that is the supposed Republican Party weigh in with trying to put a couple of its attack dogs onto the blue ribbon panel probably for no other reason than to do what they do, obfuscate, deflect, uh, deny, and discredit uh, the panel. Conversely, I would like to do a tip of the hat to Liz Cheney. If there was anyone that I think represents openness, fairness, uh, certainly trying hard as a conservative to do the right thing, she is one of the rare folks, I think, that honors her party. In fact, a party that I think most Democrats would say needs to be restored and valued. And she seems to be very much alone in trying to take that journey. So who might we actually put on a blue ribbon panel if we were to round it out with other Republicans? We know the names right away. Lisa Murkowski, maybe even our own former governor. I think Mitt Romney would uh, be a, a good add. For reasons unknown, clearly they're not in contention to participate in that panel. Maybe they just don't want to delve into the fray, but understanding what actually happened, really understanding what actually happened, bringing it to light and getting to a consensus uh, on January the 6th, when the big lie really, really was put at the front. I think that is is something that 
still needs to happen. Also, um, as we all know, there have been rumors circulating about the coming reinstatement in August. And, you know, <laughs> will that happen? Um, I think at this point we are on high alert, so doubtful that we'll see anything of substance there. But that said, once again, the big lie, the gift that keeps on taking, continues to take purported integrity from our election process. Uh, and it is the throbbing excuse for much of the election reform laws that have been pushed. I looked at a map, by the way, of where votes uh, are being cast for election reform in one place or another. And when you look at the, the what are known as the mountain region states and southern states, you see more regressive laws. And when you look at, at what is the central and northeast sector, you see election reform laws that are clearly more in favor of expanding the right to vote. Now, that said, I think it's interesting to discuss the uniformity of those laws. Now, different states obviously have different geographies. So I don't think that election laws at the state level can be entirely uniform. Trying to cast a vote in Alaska, uh, that vast region or other vast regions probably has logistic issues that we may not have in a smaller state such as Rhode Island or Massachusetts. So finding laws that make voting equitable for all citizens in a given state, I think, is ultimately the goal. And those laws may not be absolutely identical across all states. But that said, if there is election reform, I'd like to see the intent of that reform to be to seek, you know, that type of openness and equity. And clearly what is going on with the repression of the vote in many states is not the case. I open it to the floor. Morning, PJ. I just wanted to add that I'm also concerned about what you're highlighting, this idea that we are creating a very different experience and a very different uh, reality for people depending on where they live. Uh, geography matters uh, in this case. And so what is the solution? One, of course, is for Congress to um, act. And the two big sort of bills that people are talking about, the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, are central because then you create at least some uniformity in terms of um, some common rights. Um, I am of the belief that we need to act at, at all levels, you know, from the very local town kind of elections, making sure that in my you know town of Brookline, people have expanded access through, say, mail-in votes, but also obviously at, at the highest federal level, we need to ensure that black and brown communities that have historically been excluded are not being systematically excluded from um, their right to vote because I believe in our democracy. And so fundamentally, this is about the country we want to live in, who has access to make the laws, who has access to be represented and making it difficult. And, you know, you started with this notion uh, of fraud. And I think that's, you know, an argument, one, one argument that people bring up, but obviously this is a much bigger conversation. And in my mind, fraud is such an unlikely mm. issue that that it's just being pulled out. But I'd love to hear from, you know, Michael on the historical perspective. And of course, Jeff would probably know what Massachusetts is doing, which I, I believe we are. We are kind of at the forefront of what you said, the states that are uh, trying to expand voting rights. Mm. Yes, I'd like to uh, start with a historical perspective. And I'm going to have to go back to the founding of the country when we looked at all of the compromises uh, in particular around the the electoral college 
which were established to maintain a system of superiority, in this case, not just race, but also in terms of class. And there were always, and there have always been accusations of voter fraud uh, from the beginning of the country. Uh, we've been fraught with this kind of history. However, most of it occurred after the Civil War when the idea was to suppress the vote. And it's continued up to this day. Uh, now, there have been instances of voter fraud and accusations and some reality of voter fraud uh, all across the country. Uh, think back to the Kennedy election when the idea was that the mafia got involved. And in particular in Chicago, uh, Mayor Daley uh, delivered a whole lot of dead votes uh, to Kennedy. Some of it was proved, some of it, uh, but most of it, again, was thought to be incidental. However, now it feels a little different. This is not uh, about, uh, because I think our elections have become more and more secure as time has gone by, especially when you look at the fact that all of our elections are controlled at the local level, not at the federal or state level, but at the local level. So we have a very disjointed system when it comes to how the uh, idea of citizens going to vote uh, happens. But this particular incident is much more centered around lies. The evidence says this is one of the most secure elections. The last election in 2020 was one of the most secure elections ever in the history of this country. Much of that has to do with the technology uh, as well as some of the supporting laws that have been passed uh, since the Voting Rights Act. However, the lie that persists is not only the idea that we have voter fraud, but the idea that that fraud led to a disparate result. And here is the, <laughs> the real farcical part of that. Uh, for example, all of the elections that took place in Arizona, the only one that was questioned was the presidential election, mm. which for me is, again, part of, I think, the hypocrisy here. Because if there was voter fraud in the presidential election, ergo, there must have been voter fraud all in, uh, all in uh, up and down uh, the ballot. But that's not the accusation. And I think our citizens, as well as we, have to recognize that uh, our vote is pretty much secure. It's the politicians who are using the concept of voter fraud in order to maintain power. So I agree with uh, uh, with Natalia uh, that this is somewhat insidious of what's happening, and we've got to do something as both individuals and a country and as uh, as influential people to try to stop this uh, idea that power can be kept by simply declaring certain lies and then acting upon those lies. It is. It's theater. That's what Arizona is. It's just simply put theater. And the, that theater is nothing more than staging the fear, uncertainty, and doubt necessary to keep the big lie going and to continue fomenting uh, a drive towards reform, supposed reform, which is really repression. The, it, it also raises questions with respect to how it is that a state could relinquish its authority to conduct an audit, a recount, with a third-party organization like Cyber Ninjas, and what threat was that to security? 
with respect to farming out that responsibility. Uh, I It doesn't sit well. It doesn't sit as a great example of, of you know, the state's maintenance of its uh, authenticity of the actual vote count. And unfortunately, the party gets to play that however they wish to. Now, we know statistically that the numbers coming out of this audit uh, is, you know, it's an, in an article here, it says it audit in name only and uh, threat to overall confidence of democracy, all in pursuit of continuing a narrative that we now know to be a lie. And the process is a simple exercise in how disinformation spreads and takes hold. I mean, think about it. Here we are in July of 2021, still going over this narrative. From when? You know, we're talking pre-COVID days, and this thing is unfortunately still alive. And so, you know, step one is create a false reality. Well, they've certainly done that. Step two, use that false reality, you know, hit the airwaves real hard. It's about tonnage, 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 tonnage. Say it often enough, say it loudly enough. I think, Jeff, you would appreciate this one. You know, there's the old legal tenet, when the law is on your side, scream the law. When the facts are on your side, scream the facts. When emotion is on your side, scream emotion. When there ain't nothing on your side, just scream. Well, that's a nice segue for me. I appreciate that. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's fascinating to me because um, I look at the 2020 election, all the efforts that were made to get out the vote and uh, the uh, processes that we put in place to allow people to vote by mail and to allow people to vote in whatever way was comfortable to them. Uh, and I was one who filed a piece of legislation to expand mail-in voting in Massachusetts. I had a provision in there that every voter in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts should be vo uh, sent a card to provide for them the option to vote by mail. And, uh, you know, that provision was uh, later adopted and became part of the law. And we witnessed record-breaking turnout at the polls in Massachusetts. And uh, earlier I was doing the math. So there are 4,731,940, strike that. There are 4,731,940 voters in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. It, it sounds million. like an opening line to the to the uh, to the musical Rent, four million five whatever the number was five hundred twenty five thousand six hundred minutes. <laughs> That's the line from Rent. Right, uh, and there are three million six hundred fifty eight thousand and five people who actually turned in a ballot. That's wow. seventy seven percent turnout statewide. Nice uh, and. I do hear from folks who say, you know, you should put voter restrictions in and don't expand mail-in voting anymore. Uh, but it's, um, it's a pattern of emails that I can certainly detect. There's a group out there in Massachusetts called the, the Mass Fiscal Alliance that uh, is probably one of the least credible organizations I have ever dealt with uh, in political life over the past 25 years. But I'm on their mailing list for emails, and I can tell when they send out an email that by the end of the day, I am going to get a series of emails from constituents. And the latest thing from Mass Fiscal has been 
that there's voter fraud and that we should not expand mail-in voting in Massachusetts. We are, we are talking about that very issue uh, at this time. And invariably, I get a series of canned emails from people in the district who scream about voter fraud. Not one of them, not one, has yet to provide me with a single instance of voter fraud in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Mm. They haven't even given me anything from the United States of America on voter fraud. And I come from a community which had some difficulties in 2020 Mm. with the ballots. That was most unfortunate. It was most unfortunate. But you know what's important to know? That even though we had those complications at the polls in our local community, we had processes in place where the Massachusetts Secretary of State's office came in to the community, assisted with the effort, and counted every single ballot that was turned in. And we had a a result that was consistent with what we would expect in this community and did not uh, unearth any cases of voter fraud whatsoever. And to me, you know, it was an unfortunate series of events, but Mm. it gave me the confidence that we have sufficient uh, uh, internal and external controls to help in the event that uh, mistakes are made in the process to eliminate fraud. And I look at that as a, a case in point. Why would you tell me not to encourage people to come and vote? Because it's the most important statement that you can make as a citizen in this United States. And my God, I would love nothing more than to see 100% voter turnout. And I'm going to do everything in my power to encourage, entice, and make it easy for every person uh, to vote. You know, during the debate on the uh, on the uh, bill to uh, make it easier to vote, you know, we we heard from a number of folks in the in the disability community saying how difficult it was for them to vote. And could mm. we provide means for, uh, for example, uh, someone uh, who is blind? Is it is it fair that we have to require that person to have somebody else fill out their ballot and they lose their privacy in in how they vote? Uh, couldn't we come up with a more effective means uh, for allowing them to vote? The, the same with people who cannot uh, get out of their home because of some uh, particular disability. You know, what, we, what can we do to accommodate them? There are so many issues at play in this. And when I took my vote and I proposed my bill, I said, whatever it takes to make it easy for people to vote, uh, that's the road I'm going to go down because we don't have rampant fraud. We have people clamoring about fraud, but no one has provided us with any evidence. And to me, the most convincing piece was when Attorney General Barr came out with a statement and said mm-hmm. that he did an investigation and found no instances of widespread voter fraud in the United States. I said, my God, if he can say that, then uh, clearly there's no, uh, no, no widespread evidence of fraud. And what are we doing? And my final point, when I think of Arizona, I think of uh, this 
argument that I was making in a case uh, that I tried many years ago. And the judge looked at me and he said, quid punctum. I said, excuse me? He said, quid punctum. And I'm like, uh, your honor, I went to the public schools. I do not know Latin. He said, what is your point? <laughs> and I think of that very phrase when I think of Arizona, what is the point of what those people are exercising there? What are we going to learn from that frivolous third party stage or, or, or sideshow that is not going to overturn the election, is not going to do anything than rile up people who are already riled up and don't need more uh, red meat to, to get them to go. I just, I keep thinking, folks that are doing this audit, quid punctum. Uh, let me throw in two pieces of, uh, of acknowledgement to Jeff. One is the idea that we as citizens have a multitude of ways of impacting government is just not true. The main two sources of our power lie in one, the vote, that's number one. And number two, and this is not universal, uh, ballot initiatives. Now, when you as an individual citizen have only two means of impacting laws, neither one of them is direct except for you can write a particular ballot initiative that sets up a law. But even in Massachusetts, that law can be reviewed by the courts and can be redefined, even if the citizens did write it, or it can be reviewed by the legislature and also redefined. So other than the vote, it's the only way that we in a representative form of government have of impacting directly our government. That's why it's so sacrosanct. That's why it's so different than any other right that's out there. Mm -hmm. I might add, there is another opportunity for people to have a voice, and that is uh, by sitting on a jury. And I remind people that that is the most purest form of democracy that we have here in the United States, because you are sitting in judgment of someone else. You are interpreting a law and you are exercising or speaking truth to power in that context uh, when you render a verdict. So uh, I would ca categorize that as another way uh, mm -hmm. for people to participate in our government. I'd throw a strong second on that one, having been on juries in the past. <clears throat> I see their strengths. I also see some of the issues that might go with that. But uh, by and large, I think it's a great experience that everybody should embrace. The uh, one of also just highlight a couple of interesting points here with respect to the Arizona election claims. Here are the results. The Associated Press reports that in terms of Maricopa County's response, there were just 182 cases of potential voter fraud, of which only four have led to charges so far. That's certainly far fewer than the 10,457 votes required to change the election results. So in terms of margin of error, if, if it was less than 200 votes that were at all suspect, even in Cyber Ninja's count, it speaks to the notion that people who have an agenda to modify the count in their favor weren't able to do it. 
So that says a lot with respect to the integrity. And no, there was no bamboo in the paper or in, and so on and so forth. But what were the that gets back to the theater. That gets back to, well, we're looking for this mysterious substance that should cast fear, uncertainty, and doubt wherever well, we happen to need it. What were the instances of fraud? I mean, you identified four that led to charges. What were the allegations that people did to, you know, It doesn't specify fraud? in this write-up from A&P, but okay. it speaks to the notion that, again, this is a neutral report, so I'll accept it as such, <clears throat> from factcheck.org and handed to them by the Associated Press. So it's credible. And their, their language is, I think, carefully cast because they say it's 182 cases of potential voter fraud. So it means that there are 182 cases out of all the votes that were cast that we might want to re-examine. That's what that language means. Of that, only four have led to some charges. So in other words, somebody may have cast a double vote or cast a vote for a relative. And so finding only four votes that you can that have some provability of fraud is down in the noise. So it, it speaks to the fact that in terms of free and fair elections, those are pretty good numbers. And I think that the reporting on that is, is reasonably balanced in terms of its, its careful application of language. So you know, it speaks to the fact that this, this notion of looking for strange substances in the paper there's also the whole, you know, underneath all of that, Sharpie Gate, which, of course, the former president is, is uh, also promulgating, you know, with additional analysis. But what's also troubling, and uh, this speaks to that, you know, the officials have, have claimed that the county did not provide all of the information necessary to complete the review. Now they're saying that they didn't get everything they needed to get the result they wanted. That's really what they're saying. They've also lobbied, and check this out, they've also lobbied for door-to-door -door canvassing of some voters to ask them about their participation in the election. That effectively amounts to an opportunity to recast votes and voter intimidation after the fact. And I think it's an invasion of privacy. Absolutely. Uh, the idea that I'm going to go to a voter and ask that voter, how did you fill out your ballot? Uh, right. Again, is a violation of something that I think in this country, theoretically, is sacrosanct, which is Absolutely. the right of privacy of your vote. And I think it's it's important for us to not try to argue or <clears throat> or cheap uh, or to continue to legitimize the idea that there was voter fraud, but get to the core of it, which basically is. The wrong people voted, and we need to stop them from voting. And number two, the outcome was not what we wanted. And so what we need to do is set up mechanisms in order to be able to control the outcome. Right. This is not new in this country. And in particular, it has continued to happen to black and brown and economically deprived people in this country. And it was the sole reason why the need in uh, 1965 for the Voting Rights Act. And here we are again, trying to reestablish basic rights for all citizens or to keep those rights from being eroded even further. And I think the Supreme Court started us on this path uh, with the gutting of the Supreme uh, of the Voting Rights Act in terms of the pre-qualification provision 
and for those of you who don't know what the pre-qualification provision was, in other words, in designated states that had a history of voter suppression or intimidation of people of color around the vote, those states were required under the Voting Rights Act to provide to the Justice Department any changes in the law that they were contemplating for approval prior to the implementation of those laws. Those states have been trying for uh, probably ever since the ink dried on the president's signature, Lyndon Johnson's signature on the uh, 65 Voting Rights Act to get that particular piece overturned. Finally, they were successful with the Supreme Court, but with it came the idea that not just those states that had been identified as sort of historical bad actors, but now other states that weren't part of the pre-authorization piece of the Voting Rights Act started to get into play. States like Montana, states like Pennsylvania, states like Missouri. And suddenly we have this widespread issue of one voter suppression and the ability of states to be able to suppress the vote. And now it looks like after the, uh, the Arizona case with the Supreme Court ruling that Arizona has the right to make changes to its election laws that on the face appear to be voter suppression, but because the law doesn't specifically say it's a voter suppression, which uh, surprises me to no end that the Supreme Court would go down this path. But because it doesn't say voter suppression, nor does it identify people of color specifically, then it's okay for Arizona to do what it did, is another level of identification that we are in the midst of something a little bit different here, and that this does not feel right. It doesn't look right. It doesn't smell right. And the laws that are being promulgated on their face because they are targeting places uh, where there are large concentrations of people of color, which goes to your point, Pete, Maricopa County was not a uh, uh, just an idle or a random site, this, uh, uh, this cyber ninja uh, intrusion, if you will. It was targeted because it has the largest concentration of people of color of any other county mm. in Arizona. And that includes our uh, uh, indigenous people. And it's, uh, you know, I'd really like to hear, uh, you know, my friends here on the panel, you know, let's start to address the lies and the result of those lies in terms of really trying to curb or suppress the vote. And I'll start with this. I want to talk about some things that happened uh, in our last election that I thought were excellent. One, if you look at Houston, Texas, the county manager there established not just uh, means for voters to be able to mail in ballots, not just for folks to be able to have plentiful drop boxes, but they did something that I found extremely unique, which was drive-through voting. Uh, because of the pandemic, you were able to go through a line, have a clerk 
be able to check your identification, give you a ballot. You fill out the ballot right there in the car, uh, give it back to the clerk. The clerk immediately seals or you seal it up. They put it right into a, uh, a drop box. I thought that was not only creative and unique, but it's something that I think other states ought to look at. Any mechanism, and I go back to Jeff's point, any mechanism to make it easier for those who either have disabilities or who have a hard time getting to the ballot, something else uh, Houston did was go to 24-hour voting, mm. which is that uh, which truly accommodates those people who work uh, second and third shifts, that uh, you, know, you have the ballot box and access to the ballot box open 24 hours a day. Uh, and I'd really like to hear from Natalie and Jeff uh, uh, and you, Pete, in terms of, okay, what are some of the things that we ought to take away from this in order to fight against the lies and the voter suppression? Well, I'll just mention two quick points. Number one, the whole story in Maricopa County is the old uh, sad tenant. It's not your vote that counts. It's he who counts the votes. And, you know, we've, we've heard that one over and over again in other countries. And, you know, the God forbid point is that, you know, people are trying to instigate, you know, that approach here. The second point that you're raising with respect to Texas, and one that, you know, I think we're in violent agreement on, <laughs> is that uh, this is just like good app design, software design, computer design. It's all about user friendliness. If you look at voters as users, how do we make the system, the approach, friendly? This gets to other systemic issues that you've addressed with respect to voter suppression, racism, indigenous peoples, keeping blacks away from the ballot box, and so on. So user friendliness, uh, user fuzziness is, I think, a, an important new issue. And I'd really like to see states embrace that ideal of encouraging the vote by making it both convenient and enjoyable. The point I was going to uh, bring up, and I, and I loved when you talked about uh, drive-through voting in Houston, and uh, I know that they were offering that opportunity in Franklin. Franklin has a drive-through window uh, at the town hall, and uh, they did have a drop box uh, out in front of the town hall. So in effect, we did have 24-hour voting. Everybody who wanted a ballot could get that ballot mailed to them. Uh, and if you did not want to get out of your car, you could drive through at the town hall and they were accepting those ballots uh, at the drive-through window and putting them into a drop box. It was, you know, it was incredible, uh, the convenience that was offered. And uh, to me, it led to the result we wanted. More people voted, more people uh, got their voices heard. Uh, it was bizarre to me when I heard folks claiming that some of the, the, the problems that occurred in, in the Franklin election were the result of voter fraud, and that's absolutely far from the truth. That's not what happened. Uh, and there was no voter fraud there, and somehow people have suggested that, uh, that my race was impacted by this. Now, I had a race where I got 19,461 votes, and my opponent got 761. A squeaker. Uh, I, I'm, and I'm looking, <laughs> saying, what planet are you from where you can suggest that any, you know, uh, I, I, I'm speechless. Well, let me help you here, Jeff. <laughs> let me help, help you. Me because I, I, I'm <laughs> amazed that I have heard that allegation. Yeah. yeah, let me help you. Because, again, 
uh, and I, I want to go back to a point that you started with, and I don't want our listeners to be confused. When you said we got the results that we were looking for, and let's be clear, I think you and myself, and I'm not speaking for everybody on this panel, but I will say the results that I'm looking for, like you, Jeff, is a the highest percentage of turnout that is possible. 100% is, is what the goal is, but anything approaching that is just absolutely makes me giddy. It's not a matter of who wins. It's a matter of how many people participate because if i can get a hundred percent of the people participating the outcome gives me the idea or the reality in terms of what's the sentiment of the people but without people participating we and at high levels we really don't get that so let let's be clear the second part is that the reason you get the blowback jeff is because the people who are complaining didn't get the outcome they were after. Now that outcome is not necessarily as uh, ne not necessarily as egalitarian as you or I or people on this panel may see. Their outcome is I want my person in power. That's what I want. And when my person in power doesn't get in power, then something is wrong with the system. Now. Again, this is an evolution, uh, I think, exacerbated by our former president, but continues on at almost every single level of the uh, of the ballot at this point. I mean, we've got some places where school boards elections are being contested because there was voter fraud, because the outcome didn't turn the way that some of the people who were voting wanted it to be. And that, again, is part of the insidious nature of the times that we're living in. And for me, that's the part that needs to be addressed. And that's the part that I think is uh, is very dangerous to our democracy at this point. And going back to Natalia's point, which is that, yes, there may be some instances of voter fraud, and there are also some instances on the right where they attack certain aspects of the voting process. For example, in Rhode Island, uh, there is a process called voting, uh, voter harvest, vote harvesting, where an individual can go around and ask you if you've got a mail-in ballot or would you like a mail-in ballot and you get it and they'll, I'll come back and I'll collect your vote. And then they harvest those votes and then turn them in all at once which also gives you the impression that that person can lose some of the ballots that he or she may have collected if he or she believes that this person didn't vote for my candidate. That, I think, does require some scrutiny. I'm not sure that that is a legitimate process in terms of a stranger being able to walk around the neighborhood and harvest votes, and some candidates do it in Rhode Island with impunity. All right. I, for one, would agree that I have a problem with that and that that has to be dealt with. But again, overall, unlike the case in North Carolina, where a person was uh, discovered to not only harvest votes, but change votes, Vote there, been, there haven't been any kind of instances in Rhode Island where we've seen that kind of uh, uh, of fraud. But uh, at least, and I think we sometimes forget that that case in North Carolina led to a, a new election and some people going to jail. 
I'd, I'd like to also, while we're all talk, talking about this, uh, maybe take a look towards a future and what recommendations on the t- can we put on the table with respect to getting to that ideal of full participation. Some of the things that come to mind for me are both access and equity. Uh, under access, I, I know that we recently considered the idea of, of RCV, ranked choice voting. Didn't farewell in Massachusetts. And of course, New York recently tried it. The good news, it worked. Um, The not so good news is that it was perhaps uh, it had a a shadow cast over it with the fact that uh, it was discovered after the fact that the machines had 160,000 test votes still resident in the system. Uh, And of course, that was a great opportunity for people to scream fear, uncertainty, doubt, problems, see what happens, see what happens. And, but it was rectified, rectified properly. And we obviously need to make sure that that doesn't happen again. But even then it didn't change the outcome. So that's good. But returning to the, the, the notion of ranked choice voting, there are some things about it that I like. I didn't vote for it at the time because I thought it was reflected in a very complex way in the write-up that was proposed for us to consider which I went over with a fine tooth comb and I said, boy, this is complicated. So some simplification is required to make it you know, easy to understand. But the spirit of ranked choice voting that I like is that it changes the election process to a singular event in time. In other words, how do I as a voter feel at this moment when I cast my ballot and I cast my ballot completely unequivocally and in this moment, this is where I am. Uh, avoiding the notion of a runoff election means that the election process then continues after everybody's voted because we have to go through it again, which means that we've got to return to the polls. So that's an inconvenience. And it also just changes what I think is the spirit of the vote, where the election should really come down to at one singular point of time that is convenient to the voter. In other words, if we send in a a ballot early, you know, we've, we've taken our moment, considered the facts, and we know where we are, and we cast our ballot. That's a singular point in time for a given voter. But that the singular point in time comes to a conclusion on voting day. So with that notion, I would like to see a simplified form of ranked choice voting as a way of providing better access to people without having to revisit a vote, uh, and that its outcome be declared and this is, I think, equally important, its outcome be declared with all due haste and dispatch. I find it difficult when the outcome of ranked choice voting is not realized except for you know days and weeks afterwards. You know, when we when we are all up late at night wanting to understand the results of a statewide or presidential election, it, we're a nation of instant you know, instant gratification. And so we want to know going to bed exactly what happened. And we do have the technology to be able to instantly tally RCV votes, and we should make sure that our election systems can deploy that and generate a result. The faster the result is generated, the more faith people can have in the result. And so ranked choice voting has to have an opportunity to be realized both simply and quickly. Yeah, you know, Pete, I would agree with you uh, with one caveat, and that is let's not be so zealous in our uh, need for speed uh, 
that we create errors. True. Uh, and I think New York sort of pointed that out to us as well. Uh, when you're going through some of your iterations of the redistribution of votes and you discover that there was a baseline that was inaccurate, it didn't start at zero, uh, I think that was a good catch on their part. Absolutely. <laughs> if they had tried to do it all in, like, let's say, a, a few hours, which a computer could do, and, and then announce an outcome, you lose the integrity or the uh, the ability to quality control. Mm -hmm. uh, so I agree with you that it ought to be as fast as possible, but with all of the appropriate quality controls in place. And I think ranked choice voting does have, uh, I think, some up and coming uh, kinds of, of uses that I think uh, voters will find not only appealing, but very appropriate. I think it's an idea whose time will come. And I think I wanted to just add that, you know, one of the reasons there was this big delay was also that New York has a law that absentee ballots can't be uh, start. They don't start counting them for a week following the election. So that could change. Um, that was part of the delay that had nothing to do with ranked choice voting. It was just that in typical elections, the absentee ballots maybe wouldn't matter as much that. But in ranked choice voting formats, mm -hmm. they really matter because of that kind of runoff model. Um, so that has to change. That one week timeline uh, will have to change because now we know that that really delays things unnecessarily. They could start, um, you know, counting those absentee ballots, possibly even before Election Day. I don't know what all of you think about that. Absentee ballots that arrive in advance. Can you open them? Do you not open them? W what are your views on that? Well, I think that if, in fact, uh, the votes are being held and sequestered appropriately, first of all, counting them in advance that think about that you have a voting machine you have a ballot the ballot is capable of being tallied by a voting machine and so there can be in a town clerk's office a voting machine dedicated to accepting the ballots as they come in but nobody needs to know the tally the tally can remain in fact the tally so it can be accurate come voting day when everyone else goes to the polls and I think that the well, reasons I, why they don't count those ballots until after the fact, in my mind, are not really justifiable. Well, well, let me, uh, uh, well, let me get on the uh, uh, on the train of being justifiable for you, Pete. Go for it. <laughs> it Fool is me. important. It is important that there be open transparency and the ability of any citizen to scrutinize the counting of votes. And if it happens in a clerk's office on a designated machine, the question always is, were there appropriate observers when uh -huh. you put those balanced into the machine? Don't forget, the machine is the last bastion of authority in terms of taking and making sure that everyone's ballot is counted. It is of if the record. I Exactly. If I do that in secrecy or I do that at the close of business when no appropriate citizen who just wants to observe can be there, then it is important for us to establish some mechanism that says that you as town clerk don't touch those ballots, open those ballots or insert those ballots until there is transparency and the ability of any normal citizen just to walk in and observe which is what seem, happens uh, on election day. 
uh, agreed wholeheartedly, then perhaps the answer is to have a machine or two reserved for election day. So when in fact votes are taking place, there are people who under appropriate scrutiny and witness entering those votes into the machine in the exact same state as all other votes are arriving. And believe it or not, in Franklin, that's exactly the way it's supposed to happen. Uh And I say that as a former chair of the Franklin Democratic Town Committee. When I was made, uh, uh, it was open and I was invited as well as the chair of the Republican Town Council and any other voter who wanted to come and observe where we watched the town clerk take the absentee ballots, take the, uh, you know, again, what we call mail, mail-in ballots. Uh-huh. And as they would come in, she would distribute those ballots to the appropriate precinct. Because don't forget in Franklin, every one of our precincts has its own designated voting machine. Right. So that if I'm a, a resident in precinct one and I send in my ballot, what the town clerk does is to first look at the address, say, okay, this is going to go into uh, machine one. They take the stack of ballots inside of a folder, and then they just start feeding them in. Mm. Okay. All of the ones for precinct one, all of the ones for precinct seven, all of the ones for precinct five, from precinct six. Okay. And they go all up into, and then I, as the chair of the democratic town committee could observe that normally I would also be working the polls. Uh, but I could also have designees and other citizens could come in and watch her do that. The uh, other thing that I think I, you know, there's, there's one thing that's always been sort of uh, stuck in me as, as an issue is the electoral college. Now, without abolishing the college, I think one of the things that I would like to see with respect to the balance between the federal government and the state, uh, I still contend that the presidential election obviously the one generating all the big lie right now, the presidential election is different than any other election. Uh, That is, it is de facto that when we as citizens vote for a senator or a a representative in Congress, uh, when we vote for a senator, the senator represents the entire state. And therefore, it is de facto winner take all. That's our senator. Um, when we vote for president, we're voting for a president for the entire nation. And thus, our participation as a state, I think, is better served if all of the states were to abandon winner-take-all. Because what that would do is it would remove the notion of battleground states, and it would make every state effectively a battleground state, because we would have far better granularity in the outcome And we would, even with the Electoral College in place, we would end up being far closer to something that resembles the popular vote. Uh, Right now, uh, the system is being gamed. Well, I, you know, I would throw in there, Pete, that the Electoral College, in my mind, just needs to go away. I cannot, in good conscience, see any reason why it should stay And at this particular point in time, it does become a winner take all, but on a national level. Uh, I think it may accomplish the same thing that you're suggesting, which is that, you know, we eliminate battleground states. If you eliminate the Electoral College, every vote becomes important. Now, admittedly, admittedly, because of our, our, our system now, would generate 
you go where the pockets of large votes are. And that's what you're going to find a lot of candidates do. But this becomes a function of money more than it does a function of votes. In other words, it's more efficient for me to spend more time in places where there are high concentration of voters than low concentration of voters. However, the smart money goes to those people who now look at a 50 state strategy in our territories mm-hmm. uh, rather than just look at the idea that I go to California, New York, Texas, and I only concentrate on the big states. You've got to put together a coalition where clearly you're looking for a majority of votes. And I think eliminating the electoral college goes a long way toward doing that. I would totally agree. Uh, my approach in not eliminating the college, yeah, I mean, the college has been modified at least five times in history in major ways. And so the notion of trying to eliminate it altogether seems like a really large hill to climb. So that said, if in fact we simply eliminated winner take all, uh, winner take all for the president's race would at least keep the status quo in place but get us to something resembling the popular vote. And the notion of moving the needle by 1% in many of the purple states to aggregate enough electoral college votes would become basically null. Uh, And we would be much, much closer to a a fair balance. So it seems Mm -hmm. to be the easier of the two approaches to uh, apply a fix. But yeah, I, I question what the electoral college actually means anymore. I get concerned when we, um, you know, enter into these waters that we somewhat lose the focus on doable things that we can do. I, I, right. I don't see um, the Electoral College as something doable because it requires a constitutional change. Um, and I've had these conversations. I know uh, Michael has been a participant uh, at some of the meetings we've gone to about uh, folks who uh, want the voting rights bill passed at a federal level and they're going to go out and uh, make efforts. I, I say, you know, you've heard Joe Manchin, uh, you've heard uh-huh. uh, uh, the other senator say they're not going to break the filibuster. So that bill is dead on arrival. And, uh, you know, don't expend all of your energy on that particular battle because you're gonna be disappointed at the end of the day and I don't want you to get burned out because we have much more important issues uh, facing us in 2022. And that is uh, that we do not wanna lose any seats in the Mm -hmm. Senate. In fact, we need to gain more seats. We need to gain more uh, democratic uh, seats in the United States Senate. And we need to maintain control of the House because our government, our federal government, has been effectively brought to a standstill mm-hmm. because of, uh, you know, because of these issues. And uh, and we need to change that. I know a lot of folks complain and say, "Well, Massachusetts is a is a one party state, and one party rule uh, is is not effective." And I would actually say to them. Massachusetts is one of the most effective states in the entire United States. We have a, a great system here. Our government runs smoothly. We, we make uh, good decisions. And, uh, you know, you've got probably the closest balance you've ever seen at the federal level in terms of 50 Republicans, 50 Democrats, and very close in the United States House of Representatives. And I say, how's that working out for you? 
Mm. It's it's a colossal disaster down in Washington, D.C. And what we need to do is we need to uh, focus on uh, restoring uh, order down in D.C. And to me, that means picking up seats for Democrats and then in the Senate and picking up seats for the Democrats in the House. And then we can make some meaningful change and meaningful reform along the lines of what we've been discussing this morning. I was going to jump in on a point, um, Jeff. You know, I, I understand what you're saying. You know, be pragmatic. Like, fight the fights that you can actually achieve. You know, don't focus on fights that you can't achieve. But I think we do need some people out there reminding us what, is the ultimate goal, you know? So I'm, I'm looking at the Poor People's Campaign. They are organizing a set of direct actions um, in leading up to August 6th, which is the 56th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. And they are calling for things like ending the filibuster, passing all the provisions for the People Act, fully restoring the Voting Rights Act, raising the minimum wage to 15 an hour. You know, there are these values and you might want people on the streets making noise because we need some people to remind us that, that yes, while we make compromises, while we're pragmatic, while we focus on what we can change today, we can't lose sight of like what we ultimately want to reach. And so I like that there is um, that diversity of, of some people will be doing what maybe you and I and others will do, which is what is pragmatic, um, coming to compromise, coming to some solutions, and others will push from the outside and continue to push. And I think there is value um, to that. Um, unless you think that there's, you know, that they're sort of undermining some of those efforts. I see the value, but I tell, you know, and I, and I recommend to folks, don't get overwhelmed and consumed with it. Be prepared to lose and mm -hmm. don't get burned out. You're right. Yeah. Don't get burnt out. We need you in 2022 yeah. because mm -hmm. in order to get where you want to go, we need to do these other steps first. I'm with you on those, those goals, and, and I want to get there with you, but we don't have a direct course of action in 2021. You need to help us get some more tools in the toolbox so that we can do this after 2022. History has shown that in the off-year elections, the party in control tends to lose seats. We need to reverse that course of history if mm -hmm. we are going to be effective to address the issues uh, that you were talking about. So that's, that's my thing. I, I, you know, I, I hear the folks and I hear the passion and I love the passion, but pragmatism um, is something that we can't lose sight of either. You both touched on something I think is critical as we wrap things up. First of all, pragmatism is an excellent thing because it speaks to the detail required to make progress. So while we can say that the perfect is the enemy of the good, the perfect is necessary as a guiding beacon. That I, guiding beacon takes us on our way you know, toward a more perfect union, obviously. And with that, I will simply state that in learning to vote, in understanding the vote, I have come to see the vote as my most joyful obligation. Thank you all for listening. This is our journey toward a more perfect union. For Jeff Roy, for Natalie Alinos, and Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, thank you all for being with us. I'm Peter Jay. If you have an opinion that you would like to share with us, please contact us at info at franklin.tv. That's info at franklin.tv. Again, thank you for listening. We'll see you next week as we continue our journey toward a more perfect union.
This is Franklin Public Radio.